0: Chapter One, Part Three of The Stones of Venice, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Wayman. The Stones of Venice, Volume Three by John Ruskin. Chapter One, Early Renaissance, Part Three hence arose the universal and admirable system of the diapered or chequered background of early ornamental art they are completely developed in the thirteenth century and extend through the whole of the fourteenth gradually yielding to landscape and other pictorial backgrounds as the designers lost perception of the purpose of their art and of the value of color the chromatic decoration of the gothic palaces of venice was of course founded on these two great principles which prevailed constantly wherever the true chivalric and gothic spirit possessed any influence the windows with their intermediate spaces of marble were considered as the objects to be relieved and variously quartered with vigorous colour the whole space of the brick wall was considered as a background it was covered with stucco and painted in fresco with diaper patterns what the reader asks in some surprise stucco and in the great Gothic period? Even so, but not stucco to imitate stone. Herein lies all the difference. It is stucco confessed and understood, and laid on the bricks precisely as gesso is laid on canvas in order to form them into a ground for receiving colour from the human hand. Colour which, if well laid on, might render the brick wall more precious than if it had been built of emeralds whenever we wish to paint we may prepare our paper as we choose the value of the ground in no wise adds to the value of the picture a tintoret on beaten gold would be of no more value than a tintoret on coarse canvas the gold would merely be wasted all that we have to do is to make the ground as good and fit for the colour as possible by whatever means i am not sure if i am right in applying the term stucco to the ground of fresco but this is of no consequence the reader will understand that it was white and that the whole wall of the palace was considered as the page of a book to be illuminated but he will understand also that the sea winds are bad librarians that when once the painted stucco began to fade or to fall the unsightliness of the defaced color would necessitate its immediate restoration and that therefore of all the chromatic decoration of the gothic palaces there is hardly a fragment left. Happily, in the pictures of Gentile Bellini, the fresco-colouring of the Gothic palaces is recorded, as it still remained in his time, not with rigid accuracy, but quite distinctly enough to enable us, by comparing it with the existing coloured designs in the manuscripts and glass of the period, to ascertain precisely what it must have been. The walls were generally covered with checkers of very warm colour, a russet inclining to scarlet more or less relieved with white black and grey as still seen in the only example which having been executed in marble has been perfectly preserved the front of the ducal palace this however owing to the nature of its materials was a peculiarly simple example the ground is white crossed with double bars of pale red and in the centre of each checker there is a cross alternately black with a red centre, and red with a black centre, where the arms cross. In painted work the grounds would be, of course, as varied and complicated as those of manuscripts, but I only know of one example left, on the Casa Sagredo, where, on some fragments of stucco, a very early checker background is traceable, composed of crimson quatrefoils interlaced, with cherubims stretching their wings, filling the intervals, A small portion of this ground is seen beside the window taken from the palace volume two plate thirteen figure one it ought to be especially noticed that in all chequered patterns employed in the colored designs of these noble periods the greatest care is taken to mark that they are grounds of design rather than designs themselves modern architects in such minor imitations as they are beginning to attempt endeavor to dispose the parts in the patterns so as to occupy certain symmetrical positions with respect to the parts of the architecture a gothic builder never does this he cuts his ground into pieces of the shape he requires with utter remorselessness and places his windows or doors upon it with no regard whatever to the lines in which they cut the pattern and in illuminations of manuscripts the checker itself is constantly changed in the most subtle and arbitrary way wherever there is the least chance of its regularity attracting the eye and making it of importance so intentional is this that a diaper pattern is often set obliquely to the vertical lines of the designs for fear it should appear in any way connected with them on these russet or crimson backgrounds the entire space of the series of windows was relieved for the most part as a subdued white field of alabaster and on this delicate and veined white were set the circular discs of purple and green the arms of the family were of course blazoned in their own proper colours but i think generally on a pure azure ground the blue colour is still left behind the shields in the casapriuli and one or two more of the palaces which are unrestored and the blue ground was used also to relieve the sculptures of religious subject finally all the mouldings capitals cornices cusps and traceries were either entirely gilded or profusely touched with gold the whole front of a gothic palace in venice may therefore be simply described as a field of subdued russet quartered with broad sculptured masses of white and gold these latter being relieved by smaller inlaid fragments of blue purple and deep green now from the beginning of the fourteenth century when painting and architecture were thus united Two processes of change went on simultaneously to the beginning of the seventeenth. The merely decorative checkerings on the walls yielded gradually to more elaborate paintings of figure subject, first small and quaint, and then enlarging into enormous pictures filled by figures generally colossal. As these paintings became of greater merit and importance, the architecture with which they were associated was less studied and at last a style was introduced in which the framework of the building was little more interesting than that of a manchester factory but the whole space of its walls was covered with the most precious fresco paintings such edifices are of course no longer to be considered as forming an architectural school they were merely large preparations of artists panels and Titian, Giorgione, and Veronese no more conferred merit on the later architecture of Venice as such by painting on its façades than Landseer or Watts could confer merit on that of London by first whitewashing and then painting its brick streets from one end to the other. Contemporarily with this change in the relative values of the color decoration and the stonework, one equally important was taking place in the opposite direction, but of course in another group of buildings for in proportion as the architect felt himself thrust aside or forgotten in one edifice he endeavoured to make himself principal in another and in retaliation for the painter's entire usurpation of certain fields of design succeeded in excluding him totally from those in which his own influence was predominant or more accurately speaking the architects began to be too proud to receive assistance from the colourists and these latter sought for ground which the architect had abandoned for the unrestrained display of their own skill and thus while one series of edifices is continually becoming feebler in design and richer in superimposed paintings another that of which we have so often spoken as the earliest or byzantine renaissance fragment by fragment rejects the pictorial decoration supplies its place first with marbles and then as the latter are felt by the architect daily increasing in arrogance and deepening in coldness to be too bright for his dignity he casts even these aside one by one and when the last porphyry circle has vanished from the façade we find two palaces standing side by side one built so far as mere masonry goes with consummate care and skill but without the slightest vestige of colour in any part of it the other utterly without any claim to interest in its architectural form but covered from top to bottom with paintings by veronese at this period then we bid farewell to colour leaving the painters to their own peculiar field and only regretting that they waste their noblest work on walls from which in a couple of centuries if not before the greater part of their labour must be effaced on the other hand the architecture whose decline we are tracing, has now assumed an entirely new condition, that of the central or true Renaissance, whose nature we are to examine in the next chapter. But before leaving these last palaces over which the Byzantine influence extended itself, there is one more lesson to be learned from them of much importance to us. Though in many respects debased in style, they are consummate in workmanship and unstained in honour there is no imperfection in them, and no dishonesty. That there is absolutely no imperfection is indeed, as we have seen above, a proof of their being wanting in the highest qualities of architecture. But as lessons in masonry they have their value, and may well be studied for the excellence they display in methods of leveling stones, for the precision of their inlaying, and other such qualities, which in them are indeed too principal, Yet very instructive in their particular way. For instance, in the inlaid design of the Dove with the Olive Branch from the Casa Trebisan, volume one, plate twenty, it is impossible for anything to go beyond the precision with which the olive leaves are cut out of the white marble, and in some wreaths of laurel below, the rippled edge of each leaf is as finely and easily drawn as if by a delicate pencil no florentine table is more exquisitely finished than the façade of this entire palace and as ideals of an executive perfection which though we must not turn aside from our main path to reach it may yet with much advantage be kept in our sight and memory these palaces are most notable amidst the architecture of europe the rio façade of the ducal palace though very sparing in colour is yet as an example of finished masonry in a vast building one of the finest things not only in venice but in the world it differs from other work of the byzantine renaissance in being on a very large scale and it still retains one pure gothic character which adds not a little to its nobleness that of perpetual variety there is hardly one window of it or one panel that is like another and this continual change so increases its apparent size by confusing the eye that though presenting no bold features or striking masses of any kind there are few things in italy more impressive than the vision of it overhead as the gondola glides from beneath the bridge of sighs and lastly unless we are to blame these buildings for some pieces of very childish perspective they are magnificently honest as well as perfect i do not remember even any gilding upon them all is pure marble and of the finest kind and therefore in finally leaving the ducal palace let us take with us one more lesson the last which we shall receive from the stones of venice except in the form of a warning the school of architecture which we have just been examining is as we have seen above redeemed from severe condemnation by its careful and noble use of inlaid marbles as a means of colour from that time forward this art has been unknown or despised the frescoes of the swift and daring venetian painters long contended with the inlaid marbles outvying them with colour indeed more glorious than theirs but fugitive as the hues of woods in autumn and at last as the art itself of painting in this mighty manner failed from among men the modern decorative system established itself which united the meaninglessness of the veined marble with the evanescence of the fresco and completed the harmony by falsehood since first in the second chapter of the seven lamps i endeavored to show the culpableness as well as the baseness of our common modes of decoration by painted imitation of various woods or marbles the subject has been discussed in various architectural works and is evidently becoming one of daily increasing interest when it is considered how many persons there are whose means of livelihood consist altogether in these spurious arts and how difficult it is even for the most candid to admit a conviction contrary both to their interests and to their inveterate habits of practice and thought it is rather a matter of wonder that the cause of truth should have found even a few maintainers than that it should have encountered a host of adversaries it has however been defended repeatedly by architects themselves and so successfully that i believe so far as the desirableness of this or that method of ornamentation is to be measured by the fact of its simple honesty or dishonesty there is little need to add anything to what has been already urged upon the subject but there are some points connected with the practice of imitating marble which i have been unable to touch upon until now and by the consideration of which we may be enabled to see something of the policy of honesty in this matter without in the least abandoning the higher ground of principle consider then first what marble seems to have been made for over the greater part of the surface of the world we find that a rock has been providentially distributed in a manner particularly pointing it out as intended for the service of man Not altogether a common rock, it is yet rare enough to command a certain degree of interest and attention wherever it is found, but not so rare as to preclude its use for any purpose to which it is fitted. It is exactly of the consistence which is best adapted for sculpture, that is to say, neither hard nor brittle, nor flaky nor splintery, but uniform, and delicately yet not ignobly soft exactly soft enough to allow the sculptor to work it without force and trace on it the finest lines of finished form and yet so hard as never to betray the touch or moulder away beneath the steel and so admirably crystallized and of such permanent elements that no rains dissolve it no time changes it no atmosphere decomposes it once shaped it is shaped forever unless subjected to actual violence or attrition. This rock, then, is prepared by nature for the sculptor and architect, just as paper is prepared by the manufacturer for the artist, with as great, nay, with greater care and more perfect adaptation of the material to the requirements. And of this marble paper, some is white and some colored, but more is colored than white, because the white is evidently meant for sculpture, and the coloured for the covering of large surfaces. Now, if we would take nature at her word, and use this precious paper which she has taken so much care to provide for us, it is a long process, the making of that paper, the pulp of it needing the subtlest possible solution, and the pressing of it, for it is all hot-pressed, having to be done under the saw or under something at least as heavy. If, I say, we use it as nature would have us, consider what advantages would follow. The colours of marble are mingled for us just as if on a prepared palette. They are of all shades and hues, except bad ones, some being united and even, some broken, mixed and interrupted, in order to supply as far as possible the want of the painter's power of breaking and mingling the colour with the brush. But there is more in the colours than this delicacy of adaptation. There is history in them by the manner in which they are arranged in every piece of marble they record the means by which that marble has been produced and the successive changes through which it has passed and in all their veins and zones and flame-like stainings or broken and disconnected lines they write various legends never untrue of the former political state of the mountain kingdom to which they belonged of its infirmities and fortitudes convulsions and consolidations from the beginning of time. Now, if we were never in the habit of seeing anything but real marbles, this language of theirs would soon begin to be understood. That is to say, even the least observant of us would recognize such and such stones as forming a peculiar class, and would begin to inquire where they came from, and at last take some feeble interest in the main question, why they were only to be found in that or the other place, and how they came to make a part of this mountain and not of that and in a little while it would not be possible to stand for a moment at a shop door leaning against the pillars of it without remembering or questioning of something well worth the memory or the inquiry touching the hills of italy or greece or africa or spain and we should be led on from knowledge to knowledge until even the unsculptured walls of our streets became to us volumes as precious as those of our libraries but the moment we admit imitation of marble this source of knowledge is destroyed none of us can be at the pains to go through the work of verification if we knew that every colored stone we saw was natural certain questions conclusions interests would force themselves upon us without any effort of our own but we have none of us time to stop in the midst of our daily business to touch and pore over and decide with painful minuteness of investigation whether such and such a pillar be stucco or stone. And the whole field of this knowledge, which nature intended us to possess when we were children, is hopelessly shut out from us. Worse than shut out, for the mass of coarse imitations confuses our knowledge acquired from other sources, and our memory of the marbles we have perhaps once or twice carefully examined is disturbed and distorted by the inaccuracy of the imitations which are brought before us continually but it will be said that it is too expensive to employ real marbles in ordinary cases it may be so yet not always more expensive than the fitting windows with enormous plate glass and decorating them with elaborate stucco mouldings and other useless sources of expenditure in modern building nay, not always in the end more expensive than the frequent repainting of the dingy pillars, which a little water dashed against them would refresh from day to day if they were of true stone. But granting that it be so, in that very costliness, checking their common use in certain localities, is part of the interest of marbles considered as history. Where they are not found, nature has supplied other materials, clay for brick or forest for timber, in the working of which she intends other characters of the human mind to be developed, and by the proper use of which certain local advantages will assuredly be attained, while the delightfulness and meaning of the precious marbles will be felt more forcibly in the districts where they occur, or on the occasions when they may be procured. It can hardly be necessary to add that, as the imitation of marbles interferes with and checks the knowledge of geography and geology, so the imitation of wood interferes with that of botany, and that our acquaintance with the nature, uses, and manner of growth of the timber-trees of our own and of foreign countries would probably, in the majority of cases, become accurate and extensive without any labour or sacrifice of time, were not all inquiry checked and all observation betrayed by the wretched labours of the grainer. But this is not all. As the practice of imitation retards knowledge, so also it retards art. There is not a meaner occupation for the human mind than the imitation of the stains and striae of marble and wood. When engaged in any easy and simple mechanical occupation, there is still some liberty for the mind to leave the literal work, and the clash of the loom or the activity of the fingers will not always prevent the thoughts from some happy expatiation in their own domains. But the grainer must think of what he is doing, and veritable attention and care and occasionally considerable skill are consumed in the doing of a more absolute nothing than I can name in any other department of painful idleness. I know not anything so humiliating as to see a human being with arms and limbs complete, and apparently a head, and assuredly a soul, yet into the hands of which, when you have put a brush and palette, it cannot do anything with them but imitate a piece of wood. It cannot colour, it has no ideas of colour, it cannot draw, it has no ideas of form, it cannot caricature, it has no ideas of humour. It is incapable of anything beyond knots all its achievement the entire result of the daily application of its imagination and immortality is to be such a piece of texture as the sun and dew are sucking up out of the muddy ground and weaving together far more finely in millions of millions of growing branches over every rood of waste woodland and shady hill But what is to be done, the reader asks, with men who are capable of nothing else than this? Nay, they may be capable of everything else, for all we know, and what we are to do with them I will try to say in the next chapter. But meanwhile one word more touching the higher principles of action in this matter, from which we have descended, to those of expediency. I trust that some day the language of types will be more read and understood by us than it has been for centuries, And when this language, a better one than either Greek or Latin, is again recognized amongst us, we shall find, or remember, that as the other visible elements of the universe, its air, its water, and its flame, set forth in their pure energies the life-giving, purifying, and sanctifying influences of the deity upon his creatures, so the earth, in its purity, sets forth his eternity and his truth i have dwelt above on the historical language of stones let us not forget this which is their theological language and as we would not wantonly pollute the fresh waters when they issue forth in their clear glory from the rock nor stay the mountain winds into pestilential stagnancy nor mock the sunbeams with artificial and ineffective light so let us not by our own base and barren falsehoods replace the crystalline strength and burning colour of the earth from which we were born and to which we must return the earth which like our own bodies though dust in its degradation is full of splendour when god's hand gathers its atoms and which was for ever sanctified by him as the symbol no less of his love than of his truth when he bade the high priest bear the names of the children of israel on the clear stones of the breastplate of judgment End of chapter one part three